Rather than a cartoon to illustrate this morning's passage, I found a marvellous illustration, uh, marvellous, very talented people out there. Uh, this is uh, Sandy Tales, a guy that uses a light board covered with sand to illustrate stories from the Bible. Hope you like it. This is the parable of Lazarus and the rich man by Sandy Tales. Thanks, guys. Jesus told the following story. Once upon a time, there was a rich man who lived in a magnificent house. The man was always dressed according to the latest fashion, and he obviously enjoyed his wealth. His house was continually crowded with people celebrating the good life at its countless parties. Close to the entrance of the house, there was another man, Lazarus. He was a tramp, always roaming around in the neighborhood, hoping to get hold of some leftovers from the banquets of the rich. Lazarus was in a deplorable state. His body was covered in dirty wounds that were licked by the street dogs. He was in a bad shape, and one day, Lazarus was found dead under the tree where he had always sat. Angels of God came to take him to a peaceful place. There he was seated to the side of Father Abraham. Abraham is also known as the father of all the faithful. After a while, the rich man also died. He had a solemn funeral, but the angels of God did not come to take him away. After he had died, he opened his eyes. He was suffering heavy pains, and he had ended up in a nasty place. Far away, he saw poor Lazarus seated next to Abraham, and he cried for help. Father Abraham, please send someone to help me. I'm in such an awful place, and I'm so very thirsty. Send Lazarus over here with some water. You used to have a good life, while Lazarus led a miserable life, Abraham replied. Now the roles have been reversed. Moreover, it is impossible for us to reach you. But could you please send Lazarus to warn my relatives, so that they need not end up in the same misery as I have, the man continued to ask. But Abraham answered, the old stories have told them all they need to know. But if they do not want to listen to those, why should they listen to someone who returns from the dead? This is one of the many stories Jesus told to encourage people to start making the right choices today. Very, very clever. Praise God for the body of Christ, one body, many parts, each with a different role to play, each with different gifts to contribute to the body. 
Today we're going to be in Luke chapter 16 in that parable. So if you haven't got a Bible, you might want to uh, grab one from up the back. There's uh, plenty of Bibles you can actually take from the office. If you don't have a Bible at home, please come and see me. We'd love to give you a Bible. Uh, the Bible's up the back there. If you not take one of those, that would really help us out. But if you would like to follow along with a printed copy, there's versions up the back. Otherwise, you might want to open it up in front of you uh, this morning. The parable of Lazarus and, and the rich man is a pretty tough story, another rugged story. It's a story of both God's grace and, and his righteous judgment. Uh, Luke chapter 16, to give you a little bit of context, begins and ends uh, with a, a parable, both of which start, there once was a rich man. Uh, so this theme of how we're going to handle our wealth, it hasn't come out of, out of the blue. If you've been journeying with us regularly here at Church in the Marketplace in in recent weeks, you know that this has, has been a, a theme, a, a recurring theme of, of how we handle our money, our relationship with our money. So if you're here this morning, you think, oh, Pete's banging on about money again, don't shoot the messenger. I'm simply following along Luke's gospel, who's simply reporting, of course, what Jesus uh, has said. But in recent chapters, Jesus has denounced the Pharisees of, of his lovers of money, has told the parable of the rich fool who built his bigger barn so that he could store all of his worldly worth, but then his soul was demanded of him. And last week we heard about uh, the parable of the, the, of the shrewd manager, a bit of a dodgy fellow that Jesus actually commands, but it, it ends with Jesus telling his listeners, you cannot serve both God and, and money. So despite there being a few verses in between these two parables, if you've got it open in chapter 16 there in front of you, talks about uh, the kingdom of God and, and, and divorce. I reckon when Jesus starts up his second parable here, beginning with there once was a rich man, I reckon they've still got Jesus' words ringing in their ears as he's told them, you can't serve both God and money. So let's have a look at Luke chapter 16. going to be picking it up at verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels came carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and, and, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and come cool my tongue, for I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, but while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm 
has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone raises from the dead. Friends, let's pray. Heavenly Father, another challenging parable this morning from Jesus' lips. We pray that you might open our minds, open our ears, open our hearts, soften our hearts this morning to to hear you speaking to us. Convict us, we pray. We pray that my words might be your words. We pray that I might decrease and you increase in all that is said and in all that is heard. The people said, Jesus sets this story at, at a gate. There's a gate. He sets his parable at a a, a gate. On one side of the gate, we have a a rich man living his lavish lifestyle, dressed in purple and fine linens. Purple, of course, was the the color of kings and royalty, a sure sign of the upper upper class. But there's also another man here as as well. In addition to this rich man who who isn't named, um, we we do know that there's a, a beggar Uh, lying at his gate, at this rich man's gate. And we are told that this man's name is Lazarus. Now, be careful, it's not Lazarus, the brother of Martha and Mary that Jesus raises from the dead. This is another another fellow. This is a a figure that Jesus uses in his story. Probably not a literal figure. Um, It's a a character that Jesus has invented to communicate a deeper truth about what his, his kingdom is like. Lazarus was a relatively common name, a very good name, and Lazarus actually means, and this is significant, Lazarus actually means God helps or, or God is my help. God is my help. It's significant that, in fact, Lazarus is the only man that gets named in all of Jesus' parables. Apart from Father Abraham, who's a literal historical figure that also makes a cameo appearance in this parable, did you know that this, is, this Lazarus is the only guy that gets a name in all of Jesus' parables? In all the other of Jesus' parables, he begins with, there was a man, or there were two sons, but here, this beggar, Lazarus, is named. He's known by God. The rich man, however, doesn't really know Lazarus at all, doesn't even notice him. You get the sense that if he was to notice him, it would only be to be disgusted by his mere presence at his fancy gate or to be disgusted by the weeping sores the dogs would, would come, and, would come and, and lick. The rich man must have passed by Lazarus at his gate several times a week, maybe even several times a day. It's not that this rich man means any ill will towards Lazarus at all. It's not as if... He wishes harm upon Lazarus at all. You just get the impression that this rich man just completely blanked Lazarus. He just completely ignored him. He didn't do anything particularly bad, but not doing anything is 
kind of the point of this parable. It's this rich man's inaction that Jesus wants to point us to, I think. So whilst the rich man is completely ignorant of Lazarus's poor state of way of life, begging for scraps, but food from, that might fall from his table, having dogs. By the way, dogs are an unclean animal. In, in Jewish life. They're not considered to be an unclean animal. So why this rich man that had everything completely ignores and blanks Lazarus? It is, in fact, these unclean animals, dogs that come and have to tend to him and, and lick his sores. Lazarus lived hell on, on earth. He must have been an appalling life filled with suffering and hunger is the, is the brief picture that Jesus paints for us. Despite these two men, separated only by this gate, being neighbours, they are in effect in two completely different worlds, aren't they? There's a gate between them. I think the point of a gate is indeed to separate people, to stop people getting somewhere. But there is in effect a great chasm between them, operating in completely separate worlds as, as it were. So Jesus set up the story with pretty stark terms. Jesus painting in fairly bold colours, isn't he here? Two men, one living a lavish lifestyle, banquets, fine linen and purple, and another man not covered with linen but with sores. A rich man feasting sumptuously and a poor man who longs for the scraps, the crumbs that fall from this rich man's table. That's the setup. And then... Eventually, as all men and women do, they both die. They both die and their destinations are very, very different. It describes Lazarus as being carried by angels to be by Abraham's side. Remember, Father Abraham is the father of the, the Jewish nation. And it seems to be here that Abraham sort of fulfills this, this sort of role that we think of St. Peter with cartoons, sort of at the gates of heaven, admitting people in, into heaven. You know those sort of the pearly gates sort of cartoon strip? In the Jewish mind, that was Father Abraham. Father Abraham is there comforting Lazarus. He's taken to be in heaven by Lazarus' side. But the rich man, we're told that he is in torment in the fires of hell. Now let's just pause for a moment and just take a bit of a sidebar because I do want to talk about this contentious issue of hell. Many people today will come and tell you, well, I love you, Jesus, but this idea of a, of a judgmental God who sends people to hell, I don't like that so much. I don't, I, I don't believe in this concept of hell. It seems extraordinarily unfair and, and unloving. I don't like the idea of people being sent to this hell to, to burn. Unfortunately, however, the person that speaks most about hell in all of Scripture is Jesus himself. In fact, he actually speaks more about hell than everyone else in Scripture put together. So we have to deal with it. We, we have to do something with this reality. He's here telling us a parable about this place of torment, about this fiery place of torment. We don't have time to deal with it all in the here and the now, but can I just quickly suggest to you that if you don't think that there is a place for God's righteous judgment, then you've lived a very sheltered life. Um, the person that I um, have had a little bit of, of contact with is, is a, I haven't, don't know the guy, but I've read a bit of him, is Miroslav Volf. He's a, 
a Croatian theologian who lived through some appalling stuff in that part of the world. Appalling cycles of violence, murder and rape, and we killed some of them and they killed some of us and this thing continues. And Miroslav Volf says that belief in a God of judgment is actually crucial to live a life of peace on earth. He says, only a belief in God who will put everything right, who will bring judgment and righteousness and justice to this world, will ensure that justice is done. Leaving it to him is really the only way of not getting sucked into this unending cycles of violence and taking justice into your own hands. He actually says, if you think otherwise, he talks to we wealthy Westerners, he says, you've actually lived a very sheltered life, given what other people in this world, other tribes, other nations in this world have had to deal with and are still enduring to this day down through, down through the centuries. One of my favourite preachers, Tim Keller, he says, look, he has a lot of people coming to him. He's in New York, a very progressive sort of a, a city again. People coming to him. So I don't like this hell concept, uh, but I love you, Jesus. And he says to them, well, look, I think the fire of hell is... It's probably metaphoric, he says. And he says, they then breathe a huge sigh of relief. Oh, phew, it's only a metaphor. But then he says, yeah, but it's a metaphor for something far worse than mere fire. And then their eyes widen again. So Jesus is here talking about this place of, of judgment. And really, I think the best way to think of hell in, in, in very simple terms from a Christian perspective is to think of it as separation from God. It's being apart from God's presence. I don't think we need to say much more than that. We don't need to read anything else into it. We don't need to add any cartoon-like figures or caricatures. We just simply need to see what's written on the page here and, and to go no further, no more or no less, and to say, well, this is a, a place outside of, of God's presence, away from God's presence, and it is something that I certainly hope that you wish to avoid. So at this point, uh, the rich man in, in hell, um, he sees Abraham and he begs that he calls out to Father Abraham to send Lazarus to him with, a, with some water. Even just a drop of water from the tip of the finger would be a, a, a balm given the agony that he's in. But Abraham informs him, look, there's a, a great chasm separating us and, and no one can, can pass across it. So this rich man's fate is sealed at this point. The gateway into eternity is closed, is shut to him forever. It's a startling image, it's a confronting image, but I think that's very deliberate on Jesus' part. I think Jesus is trying to startle us with this parable here, and I think he succeeds, certainly on my part. I think it's particularly stark because of the picture that we have of this rich man, and it's not particularly villainous. He's not painted as a particularly evil kind of guy at all. He's just a rich guy. You get the impression he's just going his own way, minding his own business. He, we're not told that he's particularly sinful. He's not a nasty guy. In fact, later on, he expresses a bit of compassion for his family. You get the sense that this guy is a guy who, a respectable member of society. Back in those days, of course, if you were wealthy, it was a sign of God's favour resting upon you. 
God must look favorably upon you if you have great wealth. So he was probably a respected member of society. I'm sure he thought of himself as a pretty good guy, as a fine, upstanding member of society. Yet here he is being tormented in, in hell. So clearly, poverty is not a sign of disobedience to God, given that Lazarus is now in heaven beside Abraham. And, and clearly, having great wealth is not a sign of, necessarily a sign of, of great faithfulness. Jesus seems to be saying here, you can be rich in this life and poor in the next. And you can be poor in this life and abundantly wealthy in the next. So the question then raises for us, doesn't it, at this point, this point, well, what really is this man's sin? Why is he being punished? What, he, what is he actually in hell, in hell for in the first place? Well, the parable is clear. Jesus is clear that this rich man ignored Lazarus in life and is therefore being punished in death. It seems that his sin was one of ignorance. Like ignorance is really just ignorance. This guy is ignoring the need, had been ignoring the need around him each and every day sitting at his gate. So rather than being a sin of commission, a sin where you go out and do something bad, do something that is contrary to God's will, something that goes against the grain of God's good life-giving will for your life, it seems though that this guy's sin is a sins of omission, whereby you fail to do something that you should. That seems to be the issue here. Indeed, I reckon it would have been pretty galling for the guy, this rich man in hell, looking up and seeing Lazarus and being reminded of all the times that he walked past him outside his front gate without paying him any heed, without even noticing him, without offering him any help or assistance at all. Think too of this Lazarus' name meaning God helps. Maybe Lazarus was even put there to help this man, but he ignores God's help. He ignores Lazarus. So the wages of sin is indeed death here at this point. Perhaps our place in this parable can be best understood as the brothers. This man at this point cries out on behalf of his brothers. He realizes that his own fate is now sealed. He can't do anything about that, but he's actually compassionate enough to call out to Abraham on behalf of his brothers who are still alive. Maybe we sort of fit in there in the place of these brothers, these five brothers that, the, that this, this rich man wants to intercede for. He's, at this point, he calls out, doesn't he, and says to Abraham, Send Lazarus back and warn them. This rich man's fate is now sealed, but his brothers still have a, have a chance. So he begs Abraham to, to send this. He's still expecting Lazarus to pull to do his bit. Send Lazarus back to earth, to my brothers, back to my house, back to that gate, and, and, and tell him to warn them that their own ignorance is, is putting their own eternity in, in, in peril. So he's, he's actually thinking about his brothers, crying out to, the, to send, send this Lazarus back to warn his brothers who are still alive, but, well, Abraham is unmoved, isn't he? Father Abraham, you get the impression, just kind of shrugs. Well, they've got Moses and all of the prophets. 
It was their way of saying the Bible, their old, what we would call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. They've, they've got it all there. If they ignore Moses and, and, and the prophets, they're going to ignore someone, even if they come back from the dead. Did a little light bulb just go off in your head? I hope it did. It's a clear reference not only to this Lazarus rising back from the dead, but it's a reference to Jesus himself. Jesus is referencing himself. He did raise from the dead. Someone has come back from the dead, and people still ignored him. And they still, they still do. It's a rough parable at this point because there's no second chances. It's fairly stark. Unlike some other parables, think of the parable of the prodigal son where there's a second chance. There's no second or third or fourth chance here in this parable. The door to eternity is, is shut to this man. There's no second chances. So the message from this parable, I think, is clear. Jesus is drawing a very clear link. He's drawing a connection about the relationship between our eternal destination and how we treat our neighbours at our gate in this life. So what do we do with this information? How can we apply it in our lives this week? Well, I've got a couple of, couple of takeaway points from this parable, a couple of points of application from this parable. Firstly, friend, a bit, a bit of a, a subtle one before we get into the obvious takeaway, but firstly, a subtle one you might not have noticed. Friend, can I ask you to choose your identity very, very carefully this morning? Think of this rich man for a start. Who was he? He's just a rich man. Not even named. Not even named. The Lazarus, the beggar that is named here in this parable. This rich man, has, however, has no identity at all. Other than his riches, he's a nobody. Who is he? He's a rich man. That's, that's it. That's all we get. When his riches are gone, who is he? Well, he's not really him anymore. Again, um, Tim Keller wonderfully puts it this way. He says, the reason the rich man doesn't have a name is that that's all that he is. He's a rich man or he's nothing. He'd build his life on his wealth. So that, if his wealth is gone, then he is no longer there. So friend, let me tell you straight this morning. If you build your life, if you build your sense of identity, build your sense of, of self on anything other than God, then you're not really going to have a self. You're going to have no sustained core identity that outlives this frail shell that we inhabit for however many years God gives you upon this earth. So let me ask you, who are you? I mean, who are you? Who are you really? How do you define yourself? How do you describe yourself? There's a very real and very extreme danger here. If you define yourself by anything other than your relationship with God, if you define yourself by your relationships, by your accomplishments, by your titles, by your position description, or indeed by your wealth, as this man did, then although these things are not bad things in and of themselves, the problem is when they are taken away, and they will be, what's going to be left? What's going to be left to define you, to define who you, who you really are? There's only one identity that is really going to last. 
You may be a lot of things in this life. You may have a list of accomplishments. You may have a list of letters after your name. You may have a whole network of friends and family. You've got a whole list of memories. and Your passport might be stamped with a whole bunch of visas in it. And they're all great things. They're all fine things to be and to do and, and to have. But the only identity that truly matters is knowing that you are known by God. Amen? So can I encourage you to define your eternal self this day by coming into a living, breathing, personal relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Nothing else, frankly, is going to go the distance. And then we come to the obvious application point of this parable about how we use our money. But can I put it this way to you? Don't limit your financial dreams to this life. Don't limit your financial dreams to this life. We learn from this parable that there are indeed eternal consequences to how we manage the money that we've been blessed with for a period. How we manage them or indeed how we mismanage them. The thought of this is pretty disturbing. I think Jesus says it in fact to, to disturb us. Hopefully enough to motivate us into actually loving and serving the poor around us. Jesus clearly ties the way this rich man used his money to his spiritual condition. He's saying there's a direct correlation between his self-absorbed, self-indulgent lifestyle and his tortuous eternal destiny. If you live for yourself, then that's going to show up in the way that you spend your money. How you spend your money is a really good barometer, I think, of your, of your spiritual health, of your spiritual life. Uh, John in 1 John, one of his letters, 1 John chapter 3 puts it bluntly. He says, but if anyone has the goods of the world and sees his brother in need, but closes his heart to him, how does God's love even abide in him? There's a New Testament scholar by the name of Craig Blomberg. He continues this vein and he says, God has been phenomenally generous to you in giving you eternal life. And then when he is blessed us with great material abundance on top of that, as, let's be honest, every Australian has been in turn incredibly blessed. How can, we, how can we not share generously from out of the abundance that God gives us if his spirit truly dwells in us and guides us? It's okay to have financial dreams, but can I encourage you to make sure that your dreams reach into eternity? I mean, if you believe that this life is all that there is, then sure, go crazy. Go crazy. Buy a fancy house, buy a few, buy a fancy car, spend up big on banquets and all the food you want. Go crazy. Live the dream. But if you believe what Jesus says here, then can I encourage you to go crazy but in a different way? Accumulate all the wealth that you can in order that you can give, all of, in order that you can give away as much as you can. Live not for the here and now, but for eternity. Build a portfolio that's not going to make you rich in this life, but also in the next. Live the dream of being rich towards God. Nobody put it better than Jesus himself. Over in Matthew's Gospel, he says this. He says, Do not lay up treasures for yourself here on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves 
don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Financial planners tell us to don't plan for three months ahead or three years. Plan for 30 years ahead, they wisely tell us. But I encourage you this morning, Jesus is saying, plan for 3,000 years into the future. Plan for your eternal destiny. Christ, the ultimate counsellor, asks us to make sure that our investments are going to pay eternal dividends. Friends, if you get this, if you truly get this, I think it changes everything, really changes everything. So if you have money, be generous. And I hope we understand that, as Aussies here today, that we are the rich man. We are the rich woman. This parable should make us uncomfortable because we as Aussies in global terms, each of us is the rich man. Here in Australia, we're among the very richest nations on earth. I posted something on Facebook that compared all the nations of the world's wealth on a graph. It was wealth on one axis and happiness on another. And there was a few exceptions, like there were poor countries that were happy and there were, happy, there were very wealthy countries that were, that were unhappy. But generally speaking, it was an upward slope like this, meaning it's very hard to feel happy and blessed when your basic needs are not being met. And you know what? Australia was right up at the tippity top, right up at the very top right-hand corner. Even the poorest people in this nation, even the, if you're living on a pension, it is a, it is a blessing that most people around the world do not have access to. We don't feel rich, of course. Many of us, we compare ourselves to our neighbours who have, who have more than us. But please be very clear, on global terms, each of us is is the rich man. There's a huge chasm between the way we Aussies live and how most of the world lives. Let me give you just a few brief examples to close. Around 10% of the world's population live on $2, less than $2 a day. 75% of extreme poverty is either in Africa or sub-Saharan Africa or Asia. Um, still, we made great progress, but still, out of every 1,000 children that are born, 39 are going to die before they turn 5. It's a lot better than what it used to be, but we still have a long way to go. There are hundreds of millions of children, or about one in five children under the age of 17, who aren't at school still. About 8 or 9% of the world's population practices open defecation out in the street, which, of course, the human waste finds its way into food sources and water sources and causes all sorts of disease in, in communities. Rural populations around the world are seven times as likely uh, to be drinking contaminated drinking water. Uh, less than half of the rural populations around the world have the knowledge and the resources um, to even, know, even be able to wash their hands with soap and water. UNICEF reckons that being able to do that decreases health concerns by around 40%. Just washing your hands with soap and water, such a simple thing. And incidentally, too, about a third of the UN's least developed countries are also the least churched nations in the world. All of this for me personally is why I, I'm committed to serving Light Home. This week we've booked in, a num few of us here have booked in to visit Light Home in India to try to address some of these things. Uh, apart, from having, apart from knowing that you're actually breaking down and challenging some of these statistics, uh, the fact that you get to go and have an overseas holiday, make some real friends is a huge added bonus, but I'm yet to encounter something that is a better way of spending your Aussie dollars 
and giving it to the kids at Light Hope and actually break down some of these entrenched poverty generation after generation cycles that are entrenched in that part of the world. If there's a better way of spending your Aussie dollars, I don't know about it. Quick little word of warning. Please don't think, however, that, that Jesus is saying in order to be saved, you've got to do all of those things. I hope we're all very clear that we are saved by God's grace. Amen. But I think the state of how we use our money is a good barometer of the state of our hearts. So our, our loving actions, our words and actions will be downstream of being saved by God's, by God's grace. Also, I don't want you to hear that being wealthy is bad. Jesus has never made that pronouncement at all. It's sim simply calling us to examine how we use the resources that he has blessed us with. So let me leave you with a few concluding questions this morning from this very challenging parable this morning. What sort of a future awaits you? What, where will your eternal destiny be? What will be your eternal destination? Where do you get your sense of identity? Where do you get your sense of of self, and it's in, if it's in anything other than God, it's not going to go the distance. Money or, but indeed relationships and family, all of these things will one day pass away. How have you been part of the problem or indeed part of the solution? Are you part of the problem or part of the solution of poverty in our world? Have you been ignoring the poor at, at your gate? When I think of a gate these days, I think of a boarding gate. We're going to jump on a plane in January and fly it across the world. Our gate is, uh, is, is global these days, is it not? We're called to be stewards of our riches. So how are you sharing what you have with those around you? Have you been feasting sumptuously in fine linens and purple cloth while Lazarus is still hungry at your gate? Jesus told this parable to challenge us, to challenge the way we're living this side of heaven. So friends, can I encourage us as individuals and as a church family to look out for Lazarus, to see him, to not ignore him. Let's close the great chasm that exists between the rich and the poor in this life because we are followers of Jesus and because we know that he knows them, he names them, he loves them. He cares for them. He wants what's best for them. He wants them to live. He wants them to be blessed. And who knows, in, do in doing so, we might even close the great chasm that exists between ourselves and God. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that you might help us to close the great chasm between rich and poor, firstly in, in this life. Uh, we are very much aware that we are mightily blessed here in this land at this time. We live a lifestyle that previous generations could only dream of. The wealthiest of the aristocracy could only dream of living the way we do here in Sydney in 2022. So thank you, Father, for your many physical, material blessings to us. But Father, we pray that we might allow ourselves to be challenged by parables like this one. Help us to not dwell in ignorance, simply ignoring the need in this world. Help us to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. Help us to see the need and help us to act. Father, we pray that our generosity may in turn flow out of our 
faith, our trust in you, Father. We know that we don't earn our way to heaven. We don't earn our way to salvation. We can't twist your arm into accepting us via our good works, Father. But we do know that these loving acts will flow out of a yielded heart. So we give our lives over to you this day, Lord, and we declare our identity is in you. We find our sense of self from you and you alone, not from the things of this world. And as a result, Father, we pray that you might change us, make us new. May we be a new creation, sharing what we have, sharing with those in need for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.